This is The Real Story from the BBC. I'm Ritula Shah with your weekly deep dive into a story that's making news and changing lives. And this week... A rare scene in communist Cuba, anti-government protesters taking to the streets, calling for liberty for the homeland as hunger and scarcity spreads. Cuba's fragile economies taken a battering. The global pandemic's cut off much-needed revenue from tourism. Inflation's raging and basic necessities are in short supply. There's a clear desire among some for political change. We are here because of the repression against the people. They're starving us to death. Havana is collapsing. We have no house, we have nothing. But they have money to build hotels and they have us starving. State security beat me and my daughter. They beat us because we were walking down the street. There has been a huge crisis in Cuba, a health crisis, a food crisis, and people is tired and they lose fear. What I want is an internal change and the recognition of the whole world that we have the right to decide. The right to decide means democracy and capitalism, but Cuba's revolutionary government isn't having any of it. El 11 de julio. On July 11, there was no social outbreak in Cuba. There wasn't one because of the will of our people and our people's support for the revolution and its government. The United States government can't be criticized for inaction, sometimes in a veiled way, sometimes in a public, shameless way. It has been calling for, urging for, inciting a social outbreak, a social explosion. The U.S. does have a long history of involvement in Cuba, but Secretary of State Antony Blinken insists not this time. It would be a grievous mistake for the Cuban regime to interpret what is happening in dozens of towns and cities across the island as the result or product of anything the United States has done. It would show that they simply are not hearing the voices and will of the Cuban people. The Biden administration isn't diverging from Trump-era policies, at least for now. But what is the impact of sanctions and what are they for? Is the collapse of the Cuban state possible or even desirable? Or will the Socialist Republic outlive many of its Cold War allies, even without a Castro at the helm? Cuba at a crossroads. So what comes to mind when you think of Cuba? Revolution and Castro? Or maybe music and classic cars? Oh, we can't forget cigars, of course. It's a place where both the politics and culture tend to provoke a strong reaction, positive and negative. And that's from those of us on the outside. On this week's Real Story, we want to make our way inside Cuba to understand what Cubans want and to weigh up the significance of the biggest protest seen in decades. And I should add, part of this story is that it isn't necessarily that easy to speak to Cubans in Cuba. So our panel is outside the country. Let's meet them. Maria Isabel Alfonso is Professor of Spanish Cuban and Latin American Studies at St. Joseph's College in New York. She's a founding member of Cuban Americans for Engagement. Maria Isabel Alfonso, has there ever been an event or a moment during your life when you've thought this is what Cuba is about? Yes, thank you for having me. 
In my case, Cuba is a very personal experience because I lived half of my life on the island and half of my life in the United States. I was living in Cuba in the 90s, and I left in 1995 as part of the reunification parole program. And I was there when the other big demonstrations took place in 1994, known as Maleconazo, because they happened alongside the Malecon, which is the seawall in Havana. And when I see the protests that took place now, I could see similarities and differences. I felt hope because I realized that people were engaging in other type of dissent and they were feeling freer to take the streets. Uh, At the same time, I felt sadness because almost 30 years have passed since I left and there are many things that have changed, but uh, in terms of political freedoms, there is still a long way to go. A very poignant reflection from you and one we will explore more. Let's meet our second panellist. Vicky Huddleston is former chief of US mission to Cuba from 1999 to 2002, author of Our Woman in Havana, which is based on her experiences in Cuba. Welcome to The Real Story, Vicky Huddleston. Can you point to a moment or event when you felt you had real insight into what makes Cuba tick? Oh, good morning, Richard and the other panellists. My story is a little more about the government. When I was chief of the United States mission in Cuba, the United States intersection, I lived in a beautiful home, the residence of our former ambassadors. But the story revolves around this beautiful Afghan dog, a Cuban dog that I got in Cuba. And she began to win ribbons in dog shows. Yes, I got a letter from the head of the Afghan club that said I'd been discharged from the club. So I went on radio and TV and made sort of a big deal of it to show what a closed society was. Well, I had eventually, with all the stories in the press about my dog putting me in the doghouse and giving us diplomats a pause, Fidel Castro said he was giving my husband's dog a pardon. (laughs) And that kind of comes down to the Cuban government. Lots of contradictions, but also sort of a sense of humor and in the end, maybe an ability to change or back down a little bit, but tough, tough. And just to be clear, why were you kicked out of the club just for winning too much? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> because the uh, it was, the letter was from the president of the Afghan club, whose name happened to be Amelia Castro. <laughs> but the dog was pardoned, though. That was the happy ending to that story. Yes, and then when the papers picked it up, I got a call from the foreign ministry, and they said, we want you to know that the dog was pardoned, not you. <laughs> Fantastic. A great story and really a fantastic insight into, as you say, the contradictions in Cuba. Let's meet our third panellist, John Lee Anderson, author and journalist who's written extensively about Cuba. He now writes for The New Yorker magazine. Welcome to The Real Story. Was there a Cuba light bulb moment for you? Thank you, Retila. I I was chuckling at Vicky's story. um, And I guess on that theme of contradictions, I was racking my brain to think of what was the most appropriate or telling moment for me. And I guess perhaps the story that best goes to the heart of this idea of a double life that so many Cubans have to live, this idea of official expressions of fealty to the revolution, 
especially during Fidel's time. Of course, he died five years ago, and things have begun to alter since then without his mythic presence, I think. But for years, many Cubans, however mixed their feelings were, showed a sometimes rather surreal fealty to him, to his extraordinary historic presence, and yet privately very often despised him. Um, I had a friend who had been an extremely well-known writer back in the 60s. He was much older than myself, but who for years had been disenfranchised. He'd been sort of thrown on the garbage heap. There was a, there was a huge crackdown against free-thinking intellectuals in the 60s by Fidel's regime. And for over 20 years, by the time I came to live on the island, nearly 30 years, many of them had simply been moldering away as unmentionables, unpublished in Cuba. Most had left, of course. I'm talking about a half a dozen individuals. But if you were to mm. look in the books of history or literature, they were very big names in their day and still were commented on and the subject of university dissertations in universities outside Cuba. He was one of those men. Um, and periodically I would have him over to my house along with his wife and I had little children. You know, we would drink rum, he would drink a lot of rum. And when he did, he would lose this kind of uh, neutral, almost limpid demeanor and start to rant and rave about Cuba and about Fidel, about Fidel, to the point mm. where he would almost invariably end up screeching at the top of his lungs, things that would get him and anybody else uh, thrown into jail in Cuba. And we would have to shut him up, literally sometimes with his wife, put our hands over his mouth for his own sake, not ours. But he was already then a man in his 70s, and you would think he could get away with something like that being elderly. But everybody was terrified. This was the point. Nobody ever did that in Cuba. The only times that people were heard to be shouting against Fidel, they were regarded as crazy because of the consequences. At the very least, you would be socially ostracized. You would be cut off from mm -hmm. benefits. And if you were an official or someone like him, well, he was already in what they called plan pyjama, pyjama plan, which basically meant you were stripped of any duties or benefits and any employment, and you simply moldered away in your house. To fast forward a few years, eventually there was an opening, a kind of new cultural opening towards the time when Fidel was ill and, and Raul Castro's younger brother was taking over. I'm, this is about a decade, 12 years ago, that sort of thing. And this fellow, who had been ostracized for over three decades, was given one of the countries, out of the blue, uh, the top literary prize. And I saw him around this time, and now he was an octogenarian. And it was extraordinary what the recognition from his own country had done for him. He had a bounce in his step, and he even wore a beret, um, you know, this kind of, <laughs> a kind of so, accoutrement from another time. And he was proud again. But it was also very tragic and very sad because he was essentially a broken man and still was, even with his beret and the bounce in his step, because he had, he had bent to the system to such an extent that, you know, I don't know how much of himself was left there. 
a fascinating insight into the contradictions and exactly the kind of uh, way we want to see Cuba and think about Cuba during the course of this programme. I must though bring in our fourth panellist, Emily Morris. She's a development economist specialising in Latin America and the Caribbean. She's in the process of setting up a UCL Cuba research network at University College London. Emily Morris, what's your sort of brand Cuba moment? Uh, well, thanks for inviting me on here. So I went to Cuba in the late 1980s and made a, a major mistake. I got married to a Cuban and had a son, and I won't talk about that. But anyway, when I eventually came back to Cuba in the early 1990s with my son, the first interview when I started to do my research on the Cuban economy, um, seriously, and my son would actually curled up and fell asleep underneath the desk, and I had a long, long chat with one of Cuba's you know, leading economists, and I was just so impressed by the extent of his knowledge, the fact that he'd read all the same books that I'd read, and we talked about transition and we talked about dependency and all of those things. And I remember coming out of that interview just thinking, you know, this is definitely a very interesting place to be looking at. I'm glad that I've embarked on that. My son is now 30 years old, amazingly, and I'm still trying to answer the same questions that I was trying to answer right at the beginning. (laughs) Well, if anyone is in any doubt that our panel really do understand Cuba and, and have lived it and smelt it and, and uh, felt it, then I think those those stories really, really illustrate why. So let's get back very much to the present. And that's the subject of these protests. Maria Isabel Alfonso, why do you think people came out onto the streets at the beginning of this week? What was the driver, do you think? There are particular causes that we can pinpoint, such as the crisis with COVID, especially in Matanzas, where there is a really dire situation now. There's also the economic crisis that translates in shortage of food, medicine, and basic goods. There's also the role of internet. In the 90s, with the Maleconazo, Cubans didn't have access to internet. They didn't have access to social media platforms. So this has been a mobilizing factor. It's super important to understand Mm. the extent of the protests. And of course, the continuation of Trump's policies by Biden have really, really played a role in aggravating the situation in Cuba. And we'll talk about that as well later on the programme. But these protests back in 1994, which we've already mentioned several times, that happened soon after the Soviet Union collapsed. The Soviet Union had been a big ally of Cuba's and uh, the collapse meant that a major source of oil, food and other essential items that Cubans had imported for more than four decades had gone. The queues of shoppers for basic goods in Cuba's siege economy are familiar and getting worse. Underwear has just arrived in one store, butter in another. In this line, the shoppers say they've already been waiting two hours. Well, the shortages soon provoked anger and protests in the streets, but Fidel Castro managed to placate the crowds and the country's economy recovered somewhat. Now, though, people are going hungry again. Camila Lobon is a self-described artist and activist in the Cuban capital, Havana. We managed to speak to her earlier in the week and asked what she thought had sparked these protests. I don't know. It has to do with, I guess, with with people is tired. In the democratic system, we know uh, if they kick you, you can scream. The difference with Cuba is that in Cuba they kick you and you have to clap and you have to say thank you. People really need a change. There has been a huge crisis in Cuba, a health crisis, a food crisis. With the economical crisis, the government just decided to repress even more the discontent 
uh, manifestation of people, and people is tired. People is tired, and, and they lose fear. They are saying we have the right to protest and we need to do it, and they just went to the street. The government is trying to sell the image they always use, that this is something provoked by the U.S. government and by the strangers, enemies of the revolution. But the truth is that people was on the street, thousands and thousands of people. That is Camilla Lobon in Havana. Emily Morris, is it possible to work out who the protesters were? Is it a group of people? Is it something very organised or is it more spontaneous? I mean, definitely there was a large part of it was spontaneous, a very large part of it. And I think that one of the things you have to understand is partly because of the reforms that have been going on in the last 10 years, a much larger group of people are actually in the non-state sector. So there's possibly about 15% of the total working age population in that decade moved into either registered self-employed or into the informal economy, which sort of exists around the new private sector. And so all of those jobs, those livelihoods were very largely, a lot of them were dependent on tourism, on international visitors. And what happened under the Trump administration, obviously, the number of international visitors started to go down. And obviously, under COVID, it disappeared. So whereas in the 1990s, people were employed by the state, the salaries were worth much, much less. And so they were impoverished, but they were all impoverished together. Um, They also had a workplace where they would participate in activities and so on. These people are completely outside of that. So Cuba's system, what they call a participatory democracy, you have people who are completely alienated from those mechanisms, as well as having their incomes completely disappeared. And have the protests effectively been silenced, John Lee Anderson? No, I think for now, of course, yes, the repression has been uh, overwhelming. And Diaz Canel, the president, as the successor of the Castro brothers in power, you know, he had two choices at the moment at which he saw these thousands of people take to the streets openly across the island. And one was to accept, you know, what the young protester that you taped from Havana was saying and recognize that the government simply has not been able to grapple with the duties it has as a government to attend to the basic needs of its people and open up or try to ride the bucking horse in some way. And the other mm-hmm. option and the one he took was that of repression, to decry it as an imperialist Trojan horse. We've seen clips that have emerged from the island of the crackdown, you know, dozens of buses pulling up into Havana. This is presumably in subsequent days with uh, literally scores and scores of men in plain clothes, tough-looking guys coming out of these buses with sticks and baseball bats in their hands heading into the neighborhoods from which many protesters came. I just want to draw a parallel between what's happening now in 1994 again. I know this has been done before, but with Fidel in power, the protesters who were almost in a pre-insurrectional state, literally exploding in anger along the Malecon, the promenade, literally dropped their masonry bits and blocks and stones when they saw Fidel and began applauding him. Such was his presence that he was able to sway the crowds and turn their anger into something more neutral. But there's a bit of historiography involved in that whole period as well, because they also used sort of elite communist workers brigades, you know, with helmets and bats. I saw them. They trucked them in to bash heads. So it was a combination of Fidel's mythic presence 
and repression that effectively neutralized the insurrectional moment in 1994. Okay. And uh that night, Fidel went on television and told any Cuban that they wanted to could leave Cuba. And for three weeks, people did on rafts for 50,000 people. And he let the steam out of the pressure cooker. Villas Canel did not have even that sort of recourse this time. He didn't have a solution, however desperate Fidel's was, okay. to offer the people this time. Instead, he offered uh, repression. So I don't think this is a long-term solution. I want to come back then to this question of the power of the Castros. It is a really important point, which younger listeners actually may not even really understand or be aware of. Fidel Castro ruled Cuba for most of Cuba's recent history. He came to power in a revolution at the start of 1959, and he led a revolutionary force against Cuba's then unpopular military dictator, a man backed by the United States, Fulgencio Batista. From his stronghold in the wild Sierra Maestre Mountains, Cuba's Fidel Castro emerged triumphant after two years of guerrilla warfare against the Batista regime. Six years of surface prosperity and government corruption, of repression and police brutality bred explosive discontent. Now Batista has fled. A new leader is on the scene, Fidel Castro. In many ways, an unknown quantity in his politics and policies, but certain to be dominant in Cuba's new era just begun. Well, that era lasted through until 2008, when failing health forced him to hand over to his brother Raul. Ten years later, in 2018, Raul stood down, leaving the country in the hands of Miguel Diaz-Canel, who wasn't even born when the revolution took place. Maria Isabel Alfonso, do you think that it matters to this particular set of protests? How significant is it that there isn't a Castro in charge? Yes, I think it does. As you mentioned this is a new type of leadership. This is the first time that someone without the last name Castro is in control of the country. It means also that the charismatic leadership era ended. This era was led by this historical generation whose members are now in their 70s or 80s. And I'm very surprised that Miguel Diaz-Canel hasn't mentioned Raul Castro or Raul Castro hasn't really showed up in the midst of all this crisis. But that tells a story that they are really gone. <laughs> Fidel Castro died and Raul is nowhere to be found. Diaz-Canel is a, a, a communist party, a parachik. He's, he doesn't come from the military. He's an engineer. and He definitely doesn't have the charisma. I met him in person at the United Nations, at the Cuban mission. And when I met him, he was a very nice person but he definitely doesn't have the charisma. And at the same time, he's repeating a narrative that people don't believe in as much as before, which is that all the protests were counter-revolutionary or they were paid by the US. A reminder that you're listening to The Real Story from the BBC with me, Ritala Shah. If you like what you're hearing, please do review us on your podcast app, which helps other people to find us. This week, we're joined by Professor Maria Isabel Alfonso from St. Joseph's College in New York. She's a founding member of Cuban Americans for Engagement. Vicky Huddleston is also here. She's a former chief of U.S. Mission to Cuba from 1999 to 2002, an author of Our Woman in Havana, which is based on her experiences in Cuba. John Lee Anderson is an author and journalist who's written extensively about Cuba. He now writes for the New Yorker magazine. And Emily Morris is development economist specialising in Latin America. America and the Caribbean from University College London. So we've tried to understand why there have been protests. We've talked about the grip of the Castros on power and indeed on the popular imagination. 
I really want to talk now about Cuba's economy and the impact of what the US calls the embargo or sanctions and Cubans call the blockade. Emily, is it possible to divide Cuba's economy into distinct phases? So post-revolution, 1959, to the collapse of the Soviet Union up to those 1994 street protests. How was that era? How would you describe it economically? Well, the the 1990s were not only hardship. Um, Last year, we had an 11% contraction. That carried on for three years in the 1990s. You know, it was very difficult to find food. People were exhausted at that time. The clothes had run out. The shoes had worn out. You know, this time it feels sharper. Then there was a kind of a sense of despair and acceptance in those years. But then from the mid-1990s, you had a kind of turnaround where the economies began to pick up on the basis of some enclaves which restored foreign exchange earnings because what had happened with the collapse of the Soviet bloc is that they'd not only lost the preferential prices for sugar, but they'd also lost all the financing. And sugar was Cuba's biggest export and the Soviet Union paid much higher than the market price for it. That's right. And the key issue is that the relative price between sugar exports and oil imports, their import capacity actually fell by 75%. Um, So if you think of it, even if they imported nothing else, they didn't have enough money to buy enough food and fuel. You touched on how the 1990s did change. After 1993, the US tightened, I think, its embargo on Cuba, which then I think there was the introduction of some market reforms, which included the legalisation of the US dollar as currency. Was that quite different then? Was that a better era? Were people better off? There wasn't a rapid improvement, but there was a kind of adaptation to the new reality. And one of the key reforms that were made in that year, apart from opening up to foreign investment, which was crucial, was also the uh, opening of farmers' markets. That happened in 94, shortly after the protests. And that was a real turning point because there had been resistance to that until that point, and that was broken. And I don't know anybody who was in the meeting the story goes that Fidel and Raul had a different opinion on this, and Fidel didn't like opening, and Raul convinced they had to open up in order to increase the availability of food. Mm. Um, John Lee Anderson, how do you remember that time? Were things improving? Did people feel a sense of improvement in their lives? Look, I lived through the special period, which was the tough period when the rafters left and there was the Malagonasso, and the middle of that decade, I began to come and go from Cuba. And beyond the period that Emily just described, I would say that the biggest change to my eye was the advent of Hugo Chavez and his friendship with Fidel Castro. I was there for their kind of historic meeting in 1999 in which the two brokered an oil for doctors deal. Essentially, that beginning in the year 2000 meant that for the next decade and a half, approximately, not quite, about 12, 13 years, Cuba then began to receive extraordinary bonanza of essentially free oil and also cash directly to the Castro regime, which allowed them to modernize a good many things, including the electrical grid and outfit their hospitals again, which were really ground down to the basics, in return for tens of thousands of Cubans with skills, mostly doctors, but also professors and sports instructors and some security people. This allowed the regime in Cuba to also revive its old internationalist network, this time not with guerrilla fighters, but with doctors and medical missions that went all over the world. The government was paid 
quite a bit of money. And in fact, this was an important part of the economy. Although that program has often been criticised as virtual slavery on the part of the, the teachers and doctors who were sent abroad, although very, very good for Cuba's soft power. Vicky Huddleston, I wonder if for the United States in that period where there were these powerful governments in, in Brazil, in Venezuela, as, as described, and, and there were, in a sense, a set of like-minded allies across the region with Cuba, how difficult was that from a US perspective? Well, uh, we're talking about Clinton and then George Bush. And I would say that both of them wanted to see change. Every president of the United States, except Donald Trump, has at one time or another begun an opening to Cuba. So I think it's fair to say that the United States wants change and to some degree has pushed for it a little bit or not so little. But I do think that Obama's opening to Cuba can be pointed to as perhaps one of the reasons that we see Cubans in the Straits today. Cubans had so much hope. They were so delighted to have opportunities for jobs, opening their own businesses. So this was a very, very optimistic time. Let's have a reminder of that, because there was this dramatic change in March 2016, when the then US President Barack Obama made a historic visit to Cuba. Now, entering the Grand Theater of Havana, the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama. In homes and bars across Cuba, people gathered round televisions to hear a US president address them, his speech carried live and uninterrupted on the national TV network, more normally a propaganda tool of the Castro administration. President Obama wanted to turn a page. I have come here to bury the last remnant of the Cold War in the Americas. I have come here to extend the hand of friendship to the Cuban people. But as we all know, soon after that, there was a change of management in Washington, D.C. The outcome of last administration's executive action has been only more repression. Therefore, effective immediately, I am canceling the last administration's completely one-sided deal with Cuba. Well, that was back in 2017, and it was just the start. Over the next few years, the Trump administration issued more sanctions. John Lee Anderson, when you think about that Obama interlude that Vicky was describing, was it long enough for things to change? No, it wasn't. I I was in the theatre, and I was right under the balcony where Raul Castro was standing and looking at at Obama speaking. It was an amazing moment, and I'll never forget the ecstatic look on Raul's face. Everything I heard from the Obama advisors and in Cuba was that Raul was absolutely on board with this opening. He, of course, had various negotiating points. But right after that speech, right after Obama gave that speech, things changed in Cuba as well. It wasn't just Trump's election that came at the end of that year, which, of course, changed everything and and turned everything in reverse. But There was a real reaction by, I would call it the hard core, the conservative core of the Communist Party in Cuba, against what they saw as a Trojan horse. Obama just electrified the Cuban people with his presence. You know, he brought entrepreneurs. He described Miami as an example of what uh, Havana could be. And this set the backs up of many of the old guard, including Fidel, who was still alive at the time. And he made his displeasure very clear. 
in the communist newspaper, making it very uncomfortable for Raul. And for the next few months after Obama's visits, we saw a retrenchment by the Cubans and a freeze on the bilateral negotiations that Vicky described that had been going on for the previous year and a half, opening things up. So it's a saying in Cuba that the blockade is not just one way, it's two way, you know, mm. both from the United States and from Cuba. There was a real problem. So they lost time, they lost momentum, and lo and behold, in November 2016, two momentous things happened for Cuba. One was that Fidel Castro, the originator and leader of their revolution for so many years, had died. And then Trump was elected in a surprise victory in the United States. And that really began to change everything. There was another important thing that happened under Trump, Emily, which I wanted to bring up and just put on the table. And there's so much to unpack from what's just been said. But the Trump administration put Cuba back on the state sponsors of terrorism list. It had been removed from that from 2015. And what does it mean to be a state sponsor of terrorism? What did it mean for Cuba? What does it mean for Cuba? Yeah, I think it was kind of underreported because of when it happened right at the end of Trump's term. So Obama had taken Cuba off the list. And then Trump, right at the end, he put Cuba back on the list on very, very flimsy grounds. I mean, you know, none of the U.S. allies have gone along with this. They've sort of quietly just disagreed with the EU and the U.K. If you remember, the uh, Prince Charles actually went to Cuba in 2018. So this listing means that under current circumstances, every multinational company, every bank has a compliance department and they are de-risking. They're trying to reduce the risk of getting falling foul of any international sanctions or anti-money laundering or anti-terrorism thing. So they, their compliance departments will see the name Cuba on a transaction and they will advise the company not to go there. Even though dealing with Cuba is not illegal from the UK or from Europe or all the rest of it, they will simply not touch it. And practically speaking, how does that affect Cubans then? What does that mean for them? What isn't getting into the country? How is it affecting people's standards of living? Well, it affects everything. I mean, you know, the government not only doesn't have any IMF emergency COVID financing and all the rest of it, it can't borrow from anywhere. It can't borrow, it can't get financing for trade. Often when it's trying to purchase things, it turns out that the payments can't be processed and they simply can't buy them. I mean, this is something that no other country is experiencing and it's the part of the reason why it's worse now than when Cuba was previously listed is because the systems that are in place now with the computer powers and all the rest of it to trace transactions are much more sophisticated and successful than they used to be. Mm. So the chances of evading these difficulties are much worse. And just to give people a sense of the enormity of this, I mean, how much of Cuba's food, for instance, comes from overseas? Well, the figure that's always given, I think is misleading, is 70 or 80% of total food. I think that that's not true. But it's certainly true that Cuba is very dependent on food and on fuel. It's not the same as in the 1990s when almost all of the fuel was imported. Now Cuba does produce some of its own fuel. And it's very heavy and dirty fuel, which is why the power stations are breaking down. And so they do produce more of their food and fuel than they did before, but it's an awful lot of it. And so if they don't mm. have the capacity to import, then it's going to be felt by everybody. Maria, is it too simplistic to blame all of Cuba's problems on sanctions? I mean, some might point to government mismanagement. Yes, it would be simplistic to blame it on, on the embargo, but the embargo does play a significant role as part of the 
embargo, there is a budget that the U.S. uses every year to promote democracy in Cuba, and it's very controversial, and it hasn't really accomplished that much, and it creates all this sense of paranoia in the government. To give you an example, this narrative that the protesters were all paid by the U.S. government is, of course, is not real. But there is also the fact that there are many organizations that were kind of instigating or promoting the protests from outside. And many people in Cuba, many people of the, in the opposition, they are connected to these funds. So it is complicated because there is indeed the presence of the U.S. government behind indirectly in some of these. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that they're real people and they are protesting because of their urgency of the situation. So it is simplistic to blame everything on the embargo. I think the Cuban government mm. has lost an important opportunity, opportunity for many years to really make progress with the economic reforms. The process has been very slow. There is a lot of reluctance as the other panelists were mentioning before, by some sectors in the Cuban government to move ahead with the reforms. So they lost an opportunity. And now the situation is complicated because the remittances, the cut in the remittances, the inclusion of Cuba in this list of restricted entities has complicated everything for Cubans. They don't have access to food or medicine. And in the midst of the pandemic, that is complicated. And we've touched on the idea of US government meddling involvement, call it what you will, in, in Cuba. But there are, of course, a significant number of Cuban exiles who live in the United States, primarily in Florida, which obviously is a very important state politically in America. And that's, that's an important fact to hang on to. But let's just hear for a moment from Francis Suarez. He's the Republican mayor of Miami in Florida where many of that uh, Cuban emigre population live. He doesn't buy the argument that everyday Cubans blame the United States and the sanctions it imposed for their problems. I have a hard time believing that uh, Cubans, many of whose families are in Miami, really enjoying the fruits of a capitalist free society, wouldn't want uh, their family members and the government of their family members that has taken them in and supported them to be helping them on a similar transition. What's happening in Cuba is a systematic deprival of human rights, uh, of free elections, of repression for decades and decades and decades. And, you know, and, and the problem I think that we find ourselves that the logical problem is, is what is the right level of intervention? Is it no intervention? And let's let the Cuban people figure it out for themselves. Is it sanctions in the hopes that that will have some sort of an impact? Or is it something, you know, more involved with the international community support? And frankly, to this point, everything that's been tried has failed. That's Francis Suarez. I mean, he's clear about what he thinks Cuba needs. But Vicky Huddleston, do you think that Cuban exiles actually have an outsized influence on US policy? I think that Cuba policy is often domestic policy rather than foreign policy. Florida is a hugely, hugely important state with a lot of electoral votes. And it's sort of a presidential policy because of the embargo. The only person who can make a change is the president. And we saw Clinton change through executive orders. We saw Bush change it back. We saw Obama open. So presidentially, it's very, very important. So let me give you the best example I can. And that's little Elian Gonzalez. Elian Gonzalez was lost at sea, was picked up was taken to Miami, and a huge fight ensued between Fidel Castro 
and Miami Cuban Americans who wanted to keep little Elian. When Clinton sent little Elian back to Cuba, the Cuban Americans had El Voto Castigo. And Al Gore lost Florida. He only received about 18% of the Cuban American vote, whereas Clinton had received about 30%. You could say that returning little Elian lost Al Gore the election. And Elian did actually go back to his natural father, it's it's worth pointing out. Well, yes. I mean, that, in fact, was international law, that to return Mm. the child to his father. But I am so concerned about the Cuban people because I think that once again, they'll come up with the short end of the stick on this. They go out, they protest because of all the reasons we've heard, including from the mayor of Miami. And then the Cuban government brutally puts it down. And what happens next? The only revolutions or change of governments, if you look internationally, that succeed when people go out and protest are when the military, the police, security services suddenly say, no, we're joining with the people. And I fear that is not going to be the case in Cuba. So many important things in what you've just said, but just to go back two steps, bearing in mind the politics that you described then, are you unsurprised that President Biden hasn't changed tack, hasn't changed policy compared to President Trump? No, because it is domestic policy. And Biden has so many issues on his plate. And now we have issues in Haiti. We have two Caribbean countries very close to the United States Mm -hmm. with long, long histories of being close to the United States in dire circumstances. I also fear that the Biden administration, for the reasons that uh, Vicky pointed out, is very much boxed in. Um, I, I do believe that they were planning to move to lifting the state sponsor terror tag, which would have eased things in terms of exports and remittances in Cuba. But I think they will find it very difficult to do so now in the wake of the repression that we've seen, primarily because of, again, the conservative reaction in key states in the United States, especially Florida. You have to remember that Biden is in with the slimmest of majorities in the Senate with just one vote. And the head of the Democratic Party in the House is himself a Cuban-American, and so therefore rather aligned with the Republicans on this. And so you see a very tepid, reticent president in terms of foreign policy, especially where it has kickback in the United States on things like immigration, anything to do with migrants. And Cuba, of course, is another touchstone. So we are in uncharted waters. And this is, I think, one of the most sensitive moments we've seen in a long time. Maria Isabel Alfonso, Vicky Huddleston was talking about her concerns for the Cuban people. How likely is it, though, that Cubans want to rise up against their government from the documentary that you made? People were talking about wanting a civil society conversation. That's a very different prospect from from a revolution. You never know where that could end. Um, No, I don't think so. And I speak from my experience and from the fact that I have relatives and friends in Cuba. And I haven't spoke to any Cuban that has mentioned that they want to lead another revolution. They do want change. They are pressing not only for economic and for better conditions because they want more political freedoms, but they do not want to engage in another revolution. And they also don't like the idea of a military intervention from the U.S., 
I have seen many calls to that on social media after July 11th by fellow Cubans in Miami. And I have also seen the reaction of people in Cuba who are not fan of the Cuban government, but they don't like the idea of an intervention. And this comes from a nationalist sense of pride that the Cubans have. Nationalist in a post-colonial sense, not in the meaning that we give it to in the US. And, and just briefly, and this is a really important point, throughout this period in Cuba, we hear about the repression of dissident voices. We touched on this briefly at the very beginning. How significant do you think that is when people weigh up the right to protest the longevity of the regime, when people make calculations about what happens next? It is significant because everyone is tired of the government and they want change. And it's, it is the first time I think that this type of demonstrations are taking place. We have seen in the last probably five years demonstrations against violence, against male chauvinism and defense of animal rights. LGBT rights. There's an interesting thing going on with the inclusion of a more flexible legislation in the family code regarding the, the gay marriage. All those conversations are taking place sometimes through protests, but it's the first time that there is a protest around the topic of political freedoms and demanding that from the government. It's, it's really huge. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. We are almost out of time, but I want to get one more thought from each of you, which is, given everything you said during the course of this conversation, is there one change that you think could improve life for Cubans right now? Maria, I'm going to begin with you. Yes, well, first, the Cuban government needs to be more flexible and to open up and to enter the 21st century, modernise their democratic mechanisms be ready to have a conversation, a real conversation with Cubans. On the other hand, I think there's many things that the U.S. government could do. First of all, the embargo has to be lifted. It's not really doing what it intends to do, and it's really punishing the Cuban people. The remittances have to be reinstated, at least to reopen Western Union transactions would be a significant thing for Cubans. Mm. And of course, the inclusion of Cuba in the, in the list of terrorist countries is really penalizing the people because if the government cannot make transactions and cannot provide for the minimum, then it's the people who is going to pay now, that's quite a long list. Emily Morris, I'm only giving you one change <laughs> that you think could improve life for Cubans. Well, there's got to be two sides. I mean, if there was a US relaxation, I think things in Cuba would relax. You actually look in this morning, the talk from the Cuban side was we need to listen to testers, we need to listen to their complaints, we need to think about what we're doing wrong. And I think that that's definitely a sign that there's hope and that they backed off their kind of reaction, their immediate reaction to the demonstration. I think if the U.S. has kind of painted itself into a corner now, it's going to be more difficult to relax sanctions. But really, that's where the hope lies, if they can mm. recognize that tighter sanctions only increase tensions. And so although, you know, Johnny Anderson said the hardliners became worried, I think that that's actually what really happened is that the whole culture, a very deep level changed, and there was a surge towards opening up. And I think that, that really the ball's in the U.S. court here. Okay. Vicky Huddleston, what one change do you think could improve life for Cubans right now? Well, I would look at it from the national security foreign policy point of view of the United States, which means that we want to avoid chaos in Cuba. We want to promote democracy in Cuba and avoid repression. 
And I would point out that probably the best way to get to that point is to once again allow remittances. The second would be people-to-people travel, which really builds a small entrepreneurship in Cuba. Of course, for any of this to really work effectively, we really need to see change in the Cuban government. John Lee Anderson, what one change would you pick? Well, I think neither neither government is monolithic. And so on the U.S. side, I would like to see Joe Biden get in and do some backroom persuasion with his skeptics on Cuba policy and indeed loosen up the embargo in any way he can, make a goodwill gesture from the United States people to the Cuban people. And on the other side, I think it's important for all of us to understand that Cuba is not a a monolithic government either, however much it gives sometimes a different impression. And I think it's important that Diaz-Canel also seek to persuade his conservative skeptics within the government that would seek a harder line to open up to the protesters, to the Cuban people, and once again also to open up a line of communication with the United States government in order to set move things back to an amicable track, one in which some kind of openness could be achieved again. Well, that was a fascinating thought to end on. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you so much to our guests, writer and journalist John Lee Anderson, Professor Maria Isabel Alfonso, economist Emily Morris and diplomat Vicky Huddleston. And if you found this discussion interesting, you might also like an edition we recorded back in January, which explored China's growing influence across Latin America. It's about 25 episodes back in our podcast feed. You'll need to spool back a bit. It's also available on BBC Sounds. I've tweeted a link, which you can find. I'm at Ritala. But for this week, from me, Ritala Shah and the whole team, that's The Real Story. Thanks for your company and do join us again next time.